Okay, today we are uh, we are in uh, Romans chapter ten, and uh, kind of in the middle of the chapter. And uh, last week we started looking at verses five through about verse eleven. And uh, today we're going to be looking at those same verses. Uh, last week we were just laying a lot of foundation, uh, looking at a lot of background, looking at these Old Testament quotes that Paul uses here in these passages in order to try and understand the context. Uh, and today we'll pick up with that lesson to look more at what Paul's then trying to say about those things. And... Uh, and ideally, to try to get down through about verse 13, because really, uh, verses 11, 12, and 13 really tie in as part of the same paragraph. So, uh, so basically, we're trying to cover verses 5 through 13 today. To get the whole context of everything that Paul is saying, uh, let's go back to chapter 9, verse 30, because that's really where this thought process begins to develop that he's working on here in chapter 10. And he says in verse 30, What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? They did not pers- because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay? Well, as I said last week, we were looking uh, beginning in verse 5 and down through those verses that follow. So what are some of the things that you remember that we talked about last week? 
that Paul is very um, troubled in his heart over his brother's <coughs> brother Jews, he's wanting them to be saved, and he understands where they are because he was jealous also. Okay. And when he didn't know about Christ in the right way, he was he was in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah. So now he is just really trying to do anything he can to draw them in, to get them to agree, to see the light. Yeah. Good. Great. Okay. What else? <coughs> the quote used to bother me because he didn't quote accurately in the Old Testament. Uh-huh. Uh, I think after looking at it, it seems like he's not really pretexting. He's really just referring to kind of an analogy in the Old Testament or, or, or the same yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's important. Commentators kind of are different, have different ideas on this, but I think the the argument that seems to make the most sense is the one that uh, the one that you uh, just proposed that that what Paul is doing is he's he's going back in these verses where he's quoting from Moses and back in the Pentateuch, and and he. He gets it pretty close, but he but he obviously alters it in a couple significant ways. What are those two particular ways that we see that he alters Moses' quote or Moses' words? You remember? One was he referred to Christ. Okay. Instead of going across the sea. Okay, okay. So, in one case, when Moses talks about it, he says, don't say in your heart, or, or, or do not say who will ascend into heaven. Uh, that is to bring the and and Moses says that is to bring the word down so that we may hear it. Or who will go across the sea? This is all from Deuteronomy. Uh, and who will who will go across the sea in order to bring the word to us in order that we may hear it? And so he uses the idea of going. Moses uses the idea of going across the sea. Where Paul changes that to talk about going down into the abyss. Okay? And then the other significant change is that when Moses is talking, he's talking about going and getting the law and bringing the law so that we can hear the law. And as is very clear here, when Paul uses it, he says, uh, he interprets it as a ascending into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or descending into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up. So when Paul uses it, he uses it to refer to Christ when Moses used it, he used it to refer to the law. So we have these distinct differences, as, as Mike was pointing out. And, uh, and uh, as Mike suggested, and I think this is probably what Paul is doing here, Paul is using, kind of using Moses' formula, kind of, as you say, kind of like an analogy. He's taking what Moses said uh, the law says, or what Moses says about the law, He's taking that formula or that outline, and there's three parts to it. Who will ascend? Who will go across the sea? And, and then the last part is, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. There's, there's three parts to what Moses says. And Paul's taking those same three points. Who will ascend? In his case, instead of going across the sea, he says, who will descend? And then the same idea of the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. He's taking those same three points and he's telling us what faith, what the, what the righteousness based on faith says, as opposed to what the righteousness based on the law says. So with Moses, we have 
This is what the righteousness based on the law says. And with, with what Paul here in Romans 10, we have what the righteousness based on faith says. And they are very similar. Paul's using the same kind of outline. Ascend, descend, and the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. He's using that same outline or that same formula, but he's making it clear that faith says something different than the law says. So there is an analogy. There is kind of a parallel, if you will. Uh, and uh, so we need to keep that in mind that Paul is not trying. Uh, I don't believe uh, some commentators would disagree with me here, but I don't believe that Paul is suggesting that what Moses was saying, he was saying about faith. Paul or Moses is very clearly, it seems to me, talking about the law. He's not talking about faith. Uh, so it's not a it's not a prophetic passage in that sense uh, about faith. But he's just using the outline or the parallel as we could say as a literary device to give us some things to hang our thoughts on. Okay, so that's kind of expanding on what you I think what you were trying to say there, Mike. So uh, anything else we talked about last week that sticks in your mind? Okay. 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 So one is the sense that that in Christ the law ceases to function in that purpose or uh, and and the purpose is the perceived purpose. It really never was the purpose of the law. But the perceived purpose that the law would, through the law, we could generate our own righteousness, and that Christ brought the end to that, and so that's the one sense of Christ is the end of the law. The other sense is that Christ is the end of the law in the sense that Christ is the purpose or the fulfillment or the completion of the law, and uh, so uh, he it really probably has both senses there when Paul talks about it there. What else? Uh, Ron brought up the question last week and we talked about it a little bit. See if we can remember if you can remember what we said about it. Uh, why does Paul switch from this idea of across the sea to the idea of the abyss? What's going on there? Okay, okay. So in the Old Testament, there is a very close association between the idea of the sea and the abyss. So it's not as radical a shift uh, or adaptation of the passage as we might think, because those two ideas are very closely related together. And what Paul clearly is wanting to do is he's wanting to tell us what faith says, what the faith, what the righteousness based on faith says. And that has to do with bringing Christ up out of the abyss, bringing the Christ up from the dead, he said. And so that's why he makes that uh, particular adaptation of, of uh, Moses' words. Okay? Anything else? I like what you said about so many of the religious and philosophical systems that you compared to the Red Reed, just based on some secret knowledge. Yes. 
Exactly. Exactly. What Paul is saying, uh, in one sense, is very similar to what excuse me, what Moses is saying is very similar in many ways to what Paul is saying in the early chapter of Romans. Moses is saying, listen, the word is not far off. It's not something that's difficult for you to know. It's not hard for you to know. You don't need some kind of special person to go up into heaven and bring the law down or to go across the sea and bring the law over so that you can hear it. The law is easily accessible to you. And that's exactly what Paul said in earlier chapters of Romans, right? He said, listen, the law is written on people's hearts. They know it. Whether they're Jew or Gentile or whatever, that law is written on their heart. And in fact, they even speak it. In early in, in Romans, he talks about the Jews judging other people based on the law. Okay, So, we know that the Jews not only had the law in their heart, that they knew it themselves, but they were using it, verbally we could say, to judge other people. So, there's this idea that the Word is near you, it's in your heart and it's in your mouth. It's the kind of thing we talk about all the time. It's the kind of thing we, th- we just think this way. You see it every day when you drive down the street and, and, and uh, somebody cuts somebody else off in traffic and you see them shaking their fist at them or whatever and uh, giving them a piece of their mind and that's just the law in their mouth, right? They realize they shouldn't have been cut off. It was unjust. And they're telling this person, this was unjust for you to do this. You know, I had the, I had the privilege this week of driving behind somebody who cut me off and it just so happened that their name was on the back windshield, back window of their car. Their, you know, her name was Mona, and so I was able to rant at Mona by name. You know, she still didn't hear me, but at least I got to call her by her own name. You know, so uh, so at any rate, uh, the word Moses says the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's something we know. It's you know, it's not far off. It's not esoteric. You don't need some kind of special enlightened person to go get it to you. Now, if that is true about the law, about the righteousness that is based on the law, it's even more true about the righteousness that's based on faith. And that's the point that Paul is going to make. So, so uh, let's go on then and think about so, uh, having kind of laid this background about these verses, let's go on and let's kind of think through then what is Paul trying to say here? There's a couple things I want to say uh, preliminary to that. And, and one, of the, one of those is um, uh, verses uh, 9 and 10 are very well known to us. They're verses that are oftentimes used when people are presenting the gospel or sharing the gospel, uh, doing evangelism of some sort. Uh, I think yeah, I, I never was... Uh, just because I use other methods, I was never one to practice the use of what's called the Roman road. Uh, some of you are probably familiar with it may have used it. And, and I believe that these verses are, are some of the verses that are included in the so-called Roman road, which is a, uh, an evangelistic method. Uh, but they're very common. They're very well known where he says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So they're very, they're very well-known verses to us. The problem with well-known verses is that when we're reading through a passage that contains a well-known verse or a well-known section, our, our mind tends to just kind of jump to the well-known part, right? 
And you kind of focus on that and you kind of go, oh, I know what that means because you've heard about it a lot and you talked about it a lot, you've thought about it a lot. And often what that does is that lifts that kind of well-known passage out of its context. And what I want to do is these verses are very important verses, verses 9 and 10, but I want to set them back down in their context. Because I think when we set them back down in our context, we'll get a better understanding of what Paul is actually trying to say here. So they are important words, uh, important verses and very important concepts, but we want to understand them in their context. And, and uh, Paul, one of the things that happens here is that Paul uses ideas or concepts in verses 9 and 10 that he expresses in slightly different way in the verses that are in immediate proximity to verses 9 and 10. So, so these other ways that Paul expresses these same concepts that are in immediate proximity to verses 9 and 10 helped us to clarify what it is that Paul is actually saying. And particularly, I want to, I will focus today on this concept of what does it mean to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Okay? And we're going to talk about that at some length today because I think the verses that surround this passage give us some sense of what Paul is trying to say there. Um, another uh, thing I want to point out is that when, when we take verses 9 and 10 just by themselves, it appears that Paul is making a, a very clear distinction of two distinct things. And those two distinct things are what? In reference to salvation. Believing and confessing. And when we read those verses, just read them by themselves, it kind of seems like Paul is making a, a sharp line of demarcation between the idea of confessing and the idea of believing. And these are two things that you must do in order to be saved. And I'm going to suggest to you as we look at the broader context that that sharp line of demarcation does not exist. Okay? That, that in Paul's mind, he's not, he's not saying... You've got to believe, and then there's something else you've got to do. You've got to confess. Okay? If they're not two distinct things, and I'll explain to you why I think that is true as we go on. Okay, yes, it does. It makes it sound like a new law. It makes it, makes it almost sound like works salvation, doesn't it? That there, there's faith, and then there's something you do in addition to faith, which is confess. And uh, so I'll, I'll explain to you why I don't think that is the case. Now, as we look at these verses, verses 5 through 13, we, we discover kind of, I, I debated how do I articulate this? Well, how do I describe this? But the best way I could think to describe it is we see kind of two theme tracks that run kind of parallel to each other through this entire passage. And just like two tracks on a railroad that appear to run parallel, when you stand and you look down the railroad track, eventually what happens to those two tracks? They converge, okay? And I think what you're going to find is that these two theme tracks that run through this passage ultimately finally converge into one thing, okay? And uh, so, <clears throat> so, as we begin, he says... 
Uh, he tells us about what Moses said, and he goes back and he quotes, uh, of course, from eventually he quotes from several places, but eventually from Deuteronomy, and 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 then he says uh, the faith in verse six. It's uh, uh, the righteousness is based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are preaching. So, looking at just those two verses, can you begin to pick up what are Paul's kind of two themes that he's going to develop? No. Somebody has to go to get it. It's not really. Someone else has to go for it. Go where? Okay. So the first distinction we get is the idea of there's no need to what? There's no need to what? Go where? Do not say in your heart who will ascend, okay? There's no need to ascend. And last week when we talked about that, Paul clarifies it when he says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Parentheses in your translation, what? That is to what? Bring Christ down. So what we understand is the no need to ascend is a reference to what? Okay, the incarnation. It's a reference to the incarnation. And the incarnation is simply God is man, right? That God becomes man and dwells among us. God becomes flesh and dwells. So the first theme is the no need to ascend theme, okay? And then the and that involves the incarnation. And the second theme is what the no need to what to descend. And that is a reference to what. If the no need to ascend is the incarnation, the no need to descend is what the resurrection. Okay, the resurrection of Christ. Okay, these are two themes that are contained within what the righteousness based on faith says. This is the word of faith, Paul says, that we are preaching. It's kind of interesting. I was just thinking about, I don't know why I didn't pick up on this earlier, but you know, within our contemporary uh, quasi-Christian culture, there's a lot of discussion about word of faith. You know, the word of faith, the word of faith. And that's usually a reference to what? Well, it is. To, <laughs> it is uh, truly it is. But how is it often used? Name it and claim it. Prosperity gospel. Oh, you know, you speak speak a word of faith, okay? But when Paul uses the phrase "word of faith," that's how he's using it. He's using it in reference to the gospel he preaches. This is the word of faith we are preaching: that there is no need to ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down, to effect the incarnation. Why is that not necessary? Why don't we need to send somebody to heaven to get God and bring Him down to us? 
Because he's already done it. Because God initiated it. Why don't we need to descend into the abyss? I mean, Christ lived and he died, you know. Why don't we need to go get him? Because he's resurrected. No, okay. Okay, we'll allow that one. But we will not accept your apology. <laughs> okay, okay. So these two themes are connected. And as you go all the way, are, are in this passage. And as you go through the passage, you pick up these two themes repeatedly. Okay? So he says, uh, verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near, uh, excuse me, verse 6. But the righteous based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, the incarnation, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. That's reference to the resurrection. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Okay. So now we have two other expressions of this theme. And they have to do with parts of our body. And the one is what? The mouth. And the second is the heart. Okay? Now, I'm going to jump ahead. You're just going to trust me on this for just a few seconds. But the mouth is a reference to this theme. And the heart is a resurrection, excuse me, is a reference to this theme. So the mouth is a reference to the no need to ascend theme, and the heart is a reference to the no need to descend theme, okay? And uh, you'll see why I say that in just a second. So he says, the word is near you in your mouth in your, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are preaching. Now he clarifies that in verse 9. That, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What happens? You shall be saved. Okay. So, if you confess what? Jesus as Lord, which is a reference to what? is a reference to what? The incarnation, okay? So there's a confession that acknowledges the incarnation. And there's a faith in the heart that acknowledges what? The resurrection. You see why so you see why I put mouth here and heart over here? Because the mouth has to do with the confession, which has to do with the incarnation, and the heart has to do with faith, which, which has to do with the resurrection. Okay, that's just, that's just Paul still using this outline, if you will, or formula that Moses used. Okay, so that's all he's doing here. He's using Moses' formula of no need to ascend and no need to descend. He's using Moses' formula to develop this idea of what is faith saying? And what faith is saying is, is that the, the message that Paul preaches, which is the word of faith, the message Paul preaches is that with the mouth, confession is made to the incarnation. 
and with the heart, the faith believes, the heart believes and expresses faith in the resurrection. This is the message that Paul is preaching. But it goes on. There's more to it. Uh, and we'll go back and we'll talk more about this confession in just a, a few minutes because I want to really focus on that some today. Um, so he says uh, that if you confess with your mouth, verse 9, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what will happen? You'll be saved. So both of these result in salvation. Right? That the confession results in salvation and the faith results in salvation according to verse 9. Then we go on to verse 10. He says, For the heart a person believes resulting in what? Righteousness. Okay. So, over here we can put righteousness. Okay. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that is that verse 9 uses the word salvation in reference to both of these things, the confession and the faith. Verse 10 kind of makes a distinction or appears to make a distinction. And what I'm suggesting is to you is it's not really a, a sharp line of distinction. In other words, the confession or, or the salvation that he talks about in verse 9 includes the righteousness that he describes in verse 10. Did that make sense, what I just said? In other words, he's, he's, using, he's using the word salvation in a broad sense in verse 9, and in verse 10, he's using the idea of salvation and righteousness kind of contained within the broader sense of salvation. So you might think in verse 10 of salvation being a reference to salvation from sin, the forgiveness of sins that comes through the Lordship of Christ and the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ's atoning work. Okay, And all of that, the salvation from sin and the righteousness, in, uh, uh, the righteousness declared to us by God, that those two things are included within this larger rubric of what we call salvation. So salvation includes salvation from sin and righteousness imparted to us by God. Okay, so there's salvation in the broad sense and then salvation in the narrower sense of forgiveness from sin. So it seems to me that what Paul is doing here in verse nine, he's using salvation in the broader sense. And in this sense, both the, the confession of the mouth and the faith of the heart result in this general salvation. That's what verse 9 says. And verse 10, he's a little more specific. But even at that, I think it's a mistake to try to draw sharp lines of demarcation between the idea of the confession of the mouth and the faith of the heart. Okay? And again, I'll show you why I believe that's true as we go on. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Exactly. 
Yes, yes. And in fact, I had that reference down in my earlier notes. I did, they didn't make it into my final notes, but, but that's a classic example of the principle that we're talking about. Now, going down, jumping down a little bit, we get to verses 11, 12, and 13, and he says, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in Me will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, or Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In those three verses, Paul uses two quotes. One he's used earlier in chapter 9 from Isaiah 28. And that's the quote in verse 11, which says what? Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. And then he makes his comment about no distinction. We'll get to that eventually. Uh, the no distinction. And then to further elaborate his point in verse 13, then he quotes from Joel and he says what? Okay, so there again you see the two themes, right? In verse 11, what do you see? Believing this faith, okay? So we just have believing again, which is the same thing basically as faith here, okay? And in verse 13, we have what? Calling on what? The name of the Lord. Okay, this confession had to do with lordship, right? Okay. Now we have, he uses a different word, but it sounds like he's talking about the same thing. We have calling, and that's in reference to what? Calling on what? The name of the Lord has to do with lordship. Okay. Now, I'm using lordship in a little different sense here than how we typically think of it. So, uh, so I'll develop that here in just a second. So, we have these two themes that run down through the entire passage. And it's not because Paul is trying to draw a sharp line of demarcation between these two things. And that one of these things results in salvation and the other results in righteousness and they are two distinct acts. You believe and you confess. He's not drawing, he's not trying to draw a sharp line of demarcation. He's simply using Moses' formula where Moses told us in Deuteronomy what the righteousness based on the law says. And the righteousness that's based on the law says the person who's going to practice this law has got to live by it. Okay. And it's not far off. It's not hard to get. It's not hard to know. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. Now, Paul's just using that same outline to tell us what is the essence of the message of the word of faith that he is preaching. Okay. So, we don't want to draw a big dividing line down here between these two things. We want to understand that really it's all kind of melded together into one thing, okay? And, and that will become clear. Now, the first thing he says, developing this first theme, he says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. A reference to the fact that God became man. We know that's already happened. We've, that's been declared to us. We've seen it. Uh, uh, John talks to us about how we 
beheld his glory, the image of the only God that we saw him, that he was incarnate in the flesh. This is all known to us now. It's not something that's secret. We don't have to have some secret knowledge. The Gnostics and everybody were all off chasing, trying to figure out what this secret knowledge was about Christ. And Paul's saying this, this information about Christ is readily accessible. It's available to all. And that knowledge is that God became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son of God, as John says. Okay. So, Paul talks here, though, about a confession. The confession of the mouth that says what? Jesus is Lord. Okay. Now, what is he talking about here? Typically, when we look at this verse and when we read this verse, because we, as I said, oftentimes kind of just focus on these verses and really don't pay close attention to the context, that oftentimes what we think he's talking about here is something we call, or I would call, subjective lordship or personal lordship. Okay. So the idea is that in order to be saved, I need to acknowledge Christ Jesus as my personal Lord. I need to submit to His authority and submit and agree to obey Him. Now, that may be true, of course. We read that in other places. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He's talking to His disciples and His followers about this kind of subjective lordship. That Christ is Lord in my life. I have chosen to, quote, make Him Lord. Okay? I have chosen that I am going to submit to Him. I'm going to obey Him. I'm going to follow Him. And the Scripture makes it incumbent upon me to do that. So I'm not subjecting, suggesting that subjective lordship is not biblical. I'm only telling you that I don't think that's what this verse is talking about. This verse is not a reference to subjective lordship. This verse is instead a reference to what we can call the universal objective lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean when I say the universal objective lordship of Christ? That He's God. That He's Lord over everything. Okay. Why do I say that's Paul's point? Well, look at verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is what? Lord of all. Okay? So when Paul's talking about lordship here, he's talking about Christ as the Lord of all. Okay? Now, of whom is Christ Lord of all? All. Okay? Is Christ Lord? Only of those who have made Him subjectively Lord in our lives? No, He's not. He is Lord of all. And, and Paul, as we will see, bases his argument about the applicability of the Gospel to both Jew and Gentile on this predicate. On this fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And if Christ is not Lord of all, then we can't know for sure who can be saved. That's Paul's argument. 
That's the implication of Paul's argument. That our knowledge that the gospel is available to both Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, is predicated on the fact of the lordship of Christ overall. So, when he says here that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, now Paul is not excluding, of course, the idea of subjective lordship, but what he has in mind here is the objective lordship of Christ. The universal objective lordship of Christ. That He is Lord of all. He is the Creator. He's over all of us. Okay. Now, this statement in the Greek, Kyrion Iesus, Jesus is Lord, was probably the very first Christian confession. Now, what, I, what do I mean by Christian confession? Okay, exactly. Okay. Today we think of them as creeds, right? And in most Baptist churches, we don't, for whatever reason, we don't recite the creeds very often. Okay. But the church, particularly in its early years, established these different creeds, these different expressions of faith. Today we have more elaborate ones that developed over the centuries, like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. And they're fairly developed and fairly sophisticated. And one of the reasons the church developed these creeds was to help the believers within the churches to think succinctly and clearly about what do we believe. Okay? And this was particularly necessary in earlier days when... Not everybody had a Bible and not everybody could read. In fact, most people didn't have a Bible and most people couldn't read. So if you couldn't read your Bible every day, how would you remember what it is for sure you believe? Well, you would have these creeds and you would memorize these creeds and you would repeat these creeds whenever the church would come together to worship. You would repeat these creeds and this inculcated deep within your memory the truths to which we cling as believers. Well, it is believed that the earliest Christian creed, the earliest creed, the earliest confession that was regularly recited in Christian worship within the first few years of the birth of the church is the confession Kyriani Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So when Paul is writing to the church in Rome and he says this word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, what pops into their mind? What do they think about? Well, let me back up. What do you think about? When before you heard everything we just said today, when you read this verse, what popped into your mind? Okay, the idea, the objective rule of all. For many of us, it was this idea of subjective lordship, that I need to confess Christ as the Lord in my life. I need to submit to His lordship. These are thoughts that popped in their minds. 
Okay, but I can pretty much be sure that one thing did not pop into your mind is your recollection that last Sunday morning when you sat and worshipped the whole church together in unison said, Jesus is Lord. You didn't think about that, right? Why not? You don't do it, right? We don't do it, okay? Now, that's not to say we're wrong in not doing it. I'm just saying we don't practice that today. But to the church in Rome, when Paul says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, what pops into their mind is, oh yeah, I did that last Sunday morning in church. We recited that creed. Now, what we need to remember, what we need to recognize is that the recitation of that confession, the recitation of that creed within the church in Rome in the mid-60s A.D. is taking place in a profound context. Because there are two other confessions that are going on in the city of Rome while the believers are confessing Jesus is Lord. And one of those confessions is the confessions of the man of the world. The confession of the man of the world, the confession of the average Roman citizen was what? Kyrios, excuse me, uh, yeah, Kyrion Kaiser. Kyrion Kaiser. Caesar is Lord. And when the average Roman citizen confessed Caesar is Lord, he doesn't mean Caesar is my boss in a subjective sense. He means Caesar is God. The Romans believed that Caesar was God. And Caesar insisted that you believe he was God. And within a few years after this was written, Christians began to die because they would not say Caesar is Lord. But they insisted insisted that Jesus is Lord. And you can't have it both ways. Only one is Lord. So this confession with the mouth that Jesus is Lord, this creed that I recite every Sunday morning when we come together in our little house church on, you know, on Ephesus Road there in, in Rome, you know, and we all meet there and we're kind of a little secretive about it because it's not really kosher to do this. Wrong term there. But it's not really, you know, it's not really, you know, polite. This isn't done in polite company, you know, in this, but we meet together and we come together and one of the first things we do is all in unison we say, Jesus is Lord. And in doing so, we deny the lordship of Caesar. But we recognize the universal, objective lordship of Christ. But there's another confession that is also being repeated twice a day by many people in the city of Rome. And probably by many people that are in this very little home assembly we're talking about if there were Jews present. And it's what we call the Shema Yisrael. Or more often often called the Shema. S-H-E-M-A. The Shema. Does anybody know what the Shema is? Pardon? Means here. Okay. The word Shema means here. So Shema Yisrael. Yisrael 
comes from the phrase, Hear, O Israel. And Jews in Paul's day, and even today, on October 8th, September 8th, is it 8th? September 8th, 2013, all over the world, twice a day, when Jews pray, they recite the Shema Israel. And the Shema Israel says from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the great Jewish confession. This is you can when you confess this, you identified yourself as a Jew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, Elohim, is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So, when Paul writes to the Roman church and he speaks to them about this confession that Jesus is Lord, he's writing this to people who are confronted in their daily experience with these two other confessions. And when a believer in the Roman church says, Jesus is Lord, he is denying that other, that first confession, the confession of the world. Caesar is Lord. He's denying that. But when he says, Jesus is Lord, what is he saying about that other confession? No, he's not. He's explaining it, isn't it? He's explaining who this one God is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Jesus is Lord. And so, this confession is a confession of the universal, objective Lordship of Christ who is, in fact, the Yahweh of the Old Testament Jew. So this is not some blithe, easygoing thing we just say, Jesus is Lord, and then we get saved. But this is a deep-settled, heartfelt understanding of who Christ is, of a recognition of the Incarnation, that the God of the Old Testament has become flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. That this Lord who is one is Christ. And it is said in absolute contradiction to the philosophy of the world. The Jews saw it, uh, many Jews, most Jews saw it as a contradiction because they had what? Stumbled over the stumbling stone. Precisely. Well, let me just hit one other thing and then we'll have to quit. Developing this 
idea of this confession. Notice that he's got these two themes going. He's got faith and confession. He's got faith of the heart and confession of the mouth. Okay. Now, when you get down to verses 12 and 13, notice he says, uh, for, uh, verses 11 through 13, I mean, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And then verse 13, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, you see the same two parallel themes. We had confession of the mouth and we had faith. And in verse 13, which one of these two do we have? Verse and uh, verse, uh, excuse me, verse eleven. Which one do we have? We have faith, right? We have believing. Okay. So in verse thirteen, which one do we have? We have the confession or the calling. Now, Paul says in verse thirteen, quoting from Joel, who and this is a verse also that Peter quotes in his great sermon in Acts chapter two. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So now that we learn that this confession of the universal objective lordship of Christ is connected with this idea about calling upon the Lord. You see that? They're they're tied together. They're linked together. It's calling upon the name of the Lord. And so, when a person is confronted with the message of faith, this is what the message of faith says. The message of faith says you need to believe in the resurrection. Which is, which is saying you need to believe in the atoning, the sufficient atoning work of Christ. That it has been accomplished and completed as demonstrated in the resurrection. And, you need to call upon the name of the Lord. You need to call upon this one who is the universal, objective Lord of the universe. Now, Paul develops, and we'll go into this next week because we're not done with these verses yet. Paul develops this whole idea then of the connection of lordship, the objective, universal lordship of Christ with the idea of the universal applicability and availability of saving grace to all men. Okay? And we'll develop that next week.